Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. If you've been to this church very long, you've heard me tell some of my stories, you know that I love action movies. And action movies, it doesn't matter what the formula is, like it's a conspiracy movie or somebody's running from the police or somebody is the police. They, in the formula, there's always one element that's common. It's chase scene. Whether they're running and jumping off of buildings and from building to building or from car to car or they're riding motorcycle, there's always a chase scene. And I could ask you this morning, what's your favorite movie chase scene? But because I had a little bit more time to prepare for this message than a normal week, I did a little reading this week and found some real-life chase scenes that I can try and imagine within a movie. And so if, if you're familiar, if you've seen some, maybe our news junkie or something, seen different chase scenes, you can think to yourself, what's your favorite real-life chase scene? Hopefully you weren't involved in it. If you are, we're glad you're here. <laughs> but I, I've made some categories for awards if I were giving some away. for These aren't movies. These are real life. Longest chase scene in American history was in Southern California. Now here's the reality. A lot of them were in Southern California, just so you know. <laughs> If you're from Southern California, I'd love to know why you think that is the case, but it was in December 2009, not the one many of you thought of. So 150 miles lasted uh, just over two hours. Now think about that. I can tell you that as a fact, two hours, okay. That would be an entire movie. Like the whole, it's called The Chase. It's, just, uh, it's them chasing for two, two hours. But listen to this. The longest one ever happened in New Zealand, went 447 miles, and lasted 16 hours. We've got a map to show you exactly how far they traveled. And there were details I couldn't find out about this chase. Like, what kind of car was this guy driving? And what kind of gas mileage did he get? 16 hours? Did he have a pit crew somewhere? Along the way? Like, how in the world did this happen? But it happened. You can look it up uh, yourself. Probably the most memorable one that happened, if you were alive, you'll know this picture. Pop up here. That's the one some of you thought of when I said the first thing. Lasted about two hours. Uh, that white Ford Bronco held uh, O.J. Simpson right after the death of his ex-wife and her friend. You can decide. <laughs> no judgment from the stage today. Probably the coolest one, coolest one that ever happened. And I, I say this knowing there, were a lot of, there was a lot of property damage. Uh, other than the guy that was the one who stole this, uh, no one else was injured. But a guy named Sean Nelson broke into a National Guard armory and stole a tank. Here's why I think it's the coolest. Because the one I'd be most tempted to do. Like, if I saw that, I'm like, the keys are in it. Are you kidding me? He drove over 40 cars, crushed them in the parking lot, including an RV. Nobody was in any of those cars. Hit some power poles, knocked out power for about 5,000 people. Hit some fire hydrants, which I think, man, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I did a fire <laughs> Anyway, he was caught. It didn't end well. You can read the story yourself online. But my favorite story of all the ones that I read was a, a person named Preston Scarborough. So if you decide to Google it, you can find Preston Scarborough. And what happened was there was a car. It wasn't a high-speed chase. In fact, this chase only got up to 45 miles an hour. But what happened was the police were called because there was a reckless driver. The police went and found this car, tailed this car for about 10 blocks, where Preston drove back into his own driveway of his house, ran out of the car, into the basement, hit in a fort that he had made. Preston's seven years old. The police started to realize that he was a younger person when they drove up next to him and saw that he couldn't see. He would scoot down to push the gas pedal, then he'd scoot up to see above, and he'd go cruising through stop signs. He was just, you know, weaving in and out, driving recklessly. They guarded him back to the side. When they talked to his parents, they couldn't arrest him because he's so young. They talked to his parents about this. His parents asked him why he did it. He said, I didn't want to go to church. 
all right. I don't know how bad their church was, but all right. Rustin. And on the Today Show, when he appeared on the Today Show later, they were asked, he was asked, you know, what his punishment was since he didn't get arrested. And he said, I couldn't play video games or watch TV for four days. When I told my kids, they were like, he stole a car and only got four days? Like, they were blown away by that. Well, there's these pursuit stories, these chase stories. The reason why I was looking at them is because the series that we're doing, God's relentless pursuit of us. It's the ultimate chase story. The Jesus Christ, God puts on flesh. He's the God-man, comes here after us, learns what it's like to experience temptation, to get tired, to have all the temptations we had, not sinning, and it was on such a pursuit for you, you'd be willing to die for you. He says it throughout the Gospels, like why he came. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. John 3, 17. John 3, 16, many of us know. Do you ever read the next verse? He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save you. He's on a pursuit of you to reconcile you in relationship with the Heavenly Father. And that's good news because our hearts are prone to wander, aren't they? Can I tell you something today? God's coming after you. His pursuit doesn't stop the moment that you decide to turn to Jesus, by the way. God's coming after you. And so here's what I want you to ask yourself as we look at Luke chapter 15. What is your response to God's relentless pursuit of you? If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. I hope you have a copy of the Scripture. Uh, what's going on here in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling these stories, but it's interesting to get the context of, of what's happening. And before he tells these stories, he's been doing some teaching. And the teaching's been tough teaching. If you look at Luke chapter 14, if you have a copy of the Scripture and you go back, you'll see verses like verse 27. It says, He's teaching to this crowd, these people that are gathered around him. He says, whoever, talking about anybody, does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he tells the story, uh, uh, an illustration about counting the cost. Uh, look at what he says. If you've got your Bibles down in verse 33, it'll be up on the screen too. Verse 33, after he tells the story, he says, So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So he's starting, talking about what the cost of following him. And I, th- I think this is interesting. It should be like a warning, especially to church leaders. As we make church all about like whoever wants to, we'll just get as many people to come as we can. Let's make them as comfortable. We'll give them a golf cart ride from out of their car all the way up to the door. And then we'll walk them in. We'll give them some, don't give them Folgers. No, I can't give them Folgers. You can give them like, not even Starbucks. Give them like the free trade coffee that's really tastes good still though too. And we've got to get them in there. And if people complain about the coffee. Let's get the temperature the right way. And then we wonder why people aren't committed to Christ. We made a life, it's all about them. There's no cost, there's no commitment. And what Jesus makes clear is there's a cost to following him. And it's interesting than the people who flock to him. It's not the ones who think they have it all together and that life's all about them. Those people are angry with Jesus. It's the needy people, the ones who realize they need him. What's the, what's the I need you, I need your forgiveness, I need your grace. I, I, there's no way I'm getting to the Father except for through you. What do I, what do you, what's the cost? And that's what we see. And the key to understanding the parable that we're going to look at in chapter 15, verses 11, all the way through the end of the chapter, is what's happening in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Who the audience is. We'll spend more time on this next week, but, but look at it here right now. It says, now the tax collectors, and those tax collectors, they weren't just dishonest people um, that took your money when you worked a lot. We'll talk more about it next week. It'll become really applicable. But you, trust me, you would hate them, and I, hate, I would hate them. And sinners... You might hear that and think, well, we're all sinners. Yeah, that's true. But this is a group of people that weren't allowed to even worship at the temple. These are the people that are flocking around Jesus. But then verse 2 says, and the Pharisees. 
Those are the religious leaders. Those are the people that when Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, everybody was thinking, we don't have a shot. He said, you're not getting into heaven. These guys are there too. And the scribes, and they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then what you do you get is Jesus tells several stories, and they all go together, and they all have themes in them. They're all really teaching the same point. And the first one was the first one that we heard in this series. It's the parable of the lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep, one of them goes off, the shepherd goes after them, and so you've got a ratio, one to 99. The next one's lost coin, and there's a, the, the way that, that women would be identified as married, is they had these coins, there was ten coins in this woman's headband, she lost one of them, one to ten. And then you've got these lost sons, and we're going to look at the lost sons passage, but what you see as you're walking through this is they increase in importance, sheep, coin, sons, they increase in value. You got one to 100, one to 10, two out of two. Because there's older brothers here today, and oftentimes the way we treat older brothers, we're going to talk more about next week, is like Jesus was angry with them all the time. He loves the older brothers, and he's coming after them too. And, and oftentimes we just focus on, I think this sermon or this uh, passage of scripture is oftentimes mistitled uh, the prodigal son because it's really about the father. But there's two sons in the story. And so we're going to look at both of them. First one today. And look at it with me as we read in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. He said, there was a man, this is Jesus speaking, he's telling a story, it's a made-up story, by the way, to make a point. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out, this Jewish boy hires himself out to one of the citizens of that, to a Gentile, to that country. That'd be scandalous, by the way. Who sent him into his field to feed pigs. I don't know what you know about the Old Testament, but let me tell you what you won't find. You won't find many Jewish people that are like bacon farmers, all right? You're not going to find that. This is scandalous, what we're reading here. Some of you are familiar with this story, you're like, yep, yep, I get it. No, this is scandal. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So can you imagine hearing this if you're a Jewish listener for the first time? But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'll perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Here's the problem for many of us. You've heard this story before. It's probably the most popular one Jesus ever told. And so we miss the scandal that's happening because you've been conditioned, whether it's because you heard the two parables before it during Jesus' teaching or because you've heard someone preach this passage before or you've read it yourself or you get a devotional on it, you know you're supposed to rejoice over this younger son coming back. It's like the theme and all of them. One sinner repents. More than 99 who don't need to repent. There's no such thing as a sinner doesn't need to repent. We miss what's happening here because we've heard it so many times, we've been so conditioned. But this is a scandal. 
First of all, I, I, love that, I love that our missionaries, won't mention their name right now, but our, that our missionaries mentioned they're gonna, they got fascinated with honor and shame culture because that's the opposite of our culture, by the way. We're taught to question authority. Uh, we're taught if somebody's in authority, they must have done something wrong to get to be in a place of authority, and so they must be wrong, and they can't be trusted, and it, it's like part of our, it's part of our nation, our, nat- our history. We're rebels, the fact that we're here. <laughs> we were um, treasonous by coming here. Uh, we're Protestants, by the way. We're protesting against the Catholic Church. Like, it's just kind of like who we are. And so you can be like, no, that's not, that is you. That is us. Like, we all question authority. And so when we hear this son going to this father and saying, I want my inheritance, you're like, well, it might be, might be a bad dad. might be a good idea. For the Jewish listener hearing this in an honor-shame culture, they're expecting the dad, he could stone him based on Deuteronomy to death, a rebellious child at least have him imprisoned. Some scholars believe that what the son was actually saying to this father here would be in essence of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Spitting in his face. Can you imagine that? An honor-shame culture? You want scandal? He gives him his inheritance. God's sometimes so gracious with us, he lets us have what we want, knowing he won't deliver what we need. So it'll bring us back to him. It's God's grace that he allows his wrath to come into his life. Sometimes God's wrath is not that He strikes you with lightning, it's that He gives you the very thing that you want, when what you want is not Him. And He gives, gives Him His inheritance. It's a scandal. Not just that He wants the inheritance, not just that He goes and works with pigs, not, but then, you know the other scandal? It was okay to run in that culture. If you were a kid, if you were a young man, if you were involved in sports, but older, respected men did not run. It was not dignified to pull up your toga, show your legs, start running in public. But did you see how the father responds in this passage? Now remember, this parable is actually to teach you about the father's love for you. The father runs to his son. He's waiting, he's watching, and he runs to him. And here's why. You want to know something that's true about your father's love for you? Your heavenly father, he runs after rebels. There's only two points in this message today. That's one of them. It's a real simple message. Your heavenly Father, he runs after the rebels. And I'm going to tell you something. That's good news for everybody here today because everybody here today has got a little bit of rebel in them. If you're thinking to yourself about somebody who needs to hear this message right now, you're probably an older brother. Please come back next week. (laughs) But all of us here have some rebel in us. Some of us are overt rebels and some of us are covert rebels. Some of the covert rebels are just covert because they're cowards. They're afraid to actually leave God's house. They're afraid to actually go after the sin. But it's happening in their hearts. See, the overt rebel, they say, I don't care. I just, I'm just going to do my own thing. Like, I don't believe in God anymore. I'm out of here. I don't believe this. The covert rebels, there are a lot of them. In our, they're in your small group. They're all over the place. And what happens, you find it, it's subtle signs. You see things like, they say they believe God's word. They say that God's word is authoritative in their life. But when you come to something that contradicts what they think, I don't believe that part of God's word. There must, be, must need to know the Greek. There needs to be some background. God was just wrong. But I got it. Or they're always fantasizing. Maybe they don't ever tell anybody. They're fantasizing about rebelling. They're always thinking about going away from the Lord. Their heart's already gone. So there's overt and there's covert, and you see it throughout the Bible. You get overt rebels like Jonah. One of God's prophets, God says, hey, you go to Nineveh. He goes, I'm going to Tarsus. He goes the other way. Forget the whole fish thing. You got this guy in here. God still accomplishes his plan through him, by the way. You can't thwart God's sovereignty. But you can cause a lot of pain in your own life and the lives of people around you. That's what Jonah does. You got Adam. Think about Adam. You don't talk about a covert sinner. 
He's hiding. He's passively standing by. He's got his wife, which is amazing. Gave me this gift of this wife. He was told. God told him, you're not supposed to eat of the fruit of the tree. The woman eats of the fruit of the tree. He's right there with her if you read Genesis 3. Passively stands by. And then when he hears God coming after him, do you know what he does? He hides because that's what covert rebels do. They hide their sin. He hears God, and he hides amongst the trees in the garden. God created all the trees in the garden. Like, if you want to think about how funny this scene is, have you ever played hide-and-seek with a little kid, and they think they're hiding because they can't see you? Like, I remember when my kids were so little, they'd be hide-and-seek, and they put a blanket over their head, like in the middle of the room, right? So Adam's hiding from an all-knowing, all-powerful God. Oh, by the way, the first name that God's ever given in the Bible by a person, Genesis chapter 6, is a woman named Hagar. Says, you're the God who sees. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know what I would do when my kids would hide like they'd be underneath the bed, their legs are hanging out, and I walk in the room, I'd see them, I'm, like I'm trying not to laugh. Where are you? Hide and seek, you know, here I come. God says in Genesis chapter 3, where are you? <laughs> He's got to be laughing to himself. See, that's, that's what the covert rebels do. We think, we think we're actually getting away with it. We think we're hiding. You think about what's happening here in this passage of Scripture. This guy wasn't a covert one. He was, he was overt. But how long was he covert before that? This guy wanted his father dead. How long had he fantasized about that? And he finally built up the courage to go to his dad and say, I want my inheritance. So that would mean that he would get, as a younger brother, according to Deuteronomy, a third of the estate. And if you read this story, this is obviously a wealthy family. They've got workers here. They've got property, the fat calf, the ring, the rope. Like they've, got all, they've got a lot of, financially, got a lot of stuff. And what the son's saying to his dad is, Dad, I don't want you. I'm not interested in a relationship with you. I want what you have to give. Oh, that's the sign of a rebel right there. He says, give me my stuff. And his dad does it. And then look at verse 13 again. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, he squanders it, reckless living. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey to a far country. Why? Why did he go to a far country? Family's got a name. They live in this community. He's got all this stuff already. You know why rebels go to far country? They want to control the narrative. They want to be able to be who they want to be without dealing with what's going on on the inside. Can I tell you something just, by the way, too, just, just like human psychology of this whole deal? Is that a lot of times we fall into this trap that the younger brother had here where he's thinking, if I just change my circumstances, it's going to deal with the problems going on inside of my heart. No matter where you go, you're there. When you get a new job, a new marriage, a new church, live in a new city, have new clothes, whatever it is, it's not going to change what's going on in your heart. And so he goes to this far country trying to flee internal problems, and it doesn't work. He squandered his property and reckless living. Now, a lot of times we hear reckless, that word reckless. We think of like, like Preston Scarborough driving a car, like, just all, like drunk drivers. It's kind of reckless out there. And we think of people that are just like sex and drugs and all that stuff. All that reckless means is you're making decisions without thinking about the consequences. See, it doesn't say here that he was spending his money on prostitutes. The older brother says that later. It doesn't, doesn't say that here. Jesus didn't say that. But what it says here is that he was reckless, meaning he's making decisions without thinking about consequences. You ever done that? Ever told a lie to make yourself look good? You know what lies lead to? More lies. Eventually a downward spiral where you're just constantly looking over your shoulder. Can't even remember the lies you told. Start becoming the person. Start deceiving yourself about the lies that you're telling. Consequences. That's reckless living. Or are you ever told yourself, just no one will know. You'll know. 
That's not true. You'll know and you'll live with it for the rest of your life. Whatever that decision is, you in a computer screen, you in a bank account, like whatever, you know, God knows, that's not true. It's not a true thing. Never lose it with your kids. Uh-oh, preaching myself now, step on my own toes. Does that happen? What are you doing? What are you thinking? And you're trying to mold their behavior to conform to what you want, and you're not thinking about crushing their spirit. It's reckless living. That's what rebels do. It leads to emptiness. Luke chapter 15, jump down to verse 14. We just read verse 13. As when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose. What a gracious gift of God. You don't see your need, I'm going to help you see your need. Even if it means difficulty. Because I care about you too much eternally to let you not suffer temporarily. Severe famine arose in that country. They began to be in need. Now this guy was in need when he asked for his inheritance. But here he starts to sense his need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. That would be scandalous, a Jew renting himself out to a Gentile who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Like a bunch of the listeners in Jesus' story are probably done at this point. A Jewish boy, feed, like what's the, here's a great question for those of you who are small group leaders, you want an icebreaker in your group, maybe you're meeting through the summer, you do this this weekend, maybe when you get back together. What's the worst job you ever had? Like you want to get to know people, ask them that, you start learning stuff about them. So I've, had, I've asked friends that before. I had one friend who worked at a slaughterhouse, so it made me think of this story, and his job was he wore weight, rubber waders, and he had to go clean out the drains at the slaughterhouse. Because, you know, bone and stuff gets stuck. Like, I can just keep talking. It gets terrible the more I tell you. I think, well, was this the worst job you ever had? I've had some terrible jobs. I've thought about the time when I was looking at this this week. It wasn't the worst job I ever had, but when I started a landscaping company, yeah, that lasted for one job, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It was terrible. I was so angry at the guy. Anyway, whatever. I'm not going to tell you that. Too much confession in one message. It's the worst job you ever had. This is the worst job this guy could possibly have. It's scandalous what's happening here. And he comes to his senses. He comes to himself, the passage says. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. And then you look what happens. Jump down to verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. He hasn't even repented yet. He hasn't confessed. He hasn't told all the naughty things that he did in his reckless living. His father runs to him. You know why? Because your father runs after rebels. Ever ask yourself the question, those of you who have heard this passage of Scripture before, how long was the father standing there waiting? How did he see him so quick? And I'm going to tell you a truth that I think many of you know you know it in your mind, but I'm not sure how it practically plays out in your life. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he will never leave you or forsake you. It's Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we talk about at Christmas time that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's always with us. It's interesting if you read the Gospel of Matthew from front to back, and you can do it in one sitting if you'd like to try. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, the, the Great Commission, at the end of it, there's a promise, and lo, I am with you always. Interesting, Matthew starts with, he is Emmanuel, God with us, and it ends with this promise, I'm never going to leave you. I'm with you always. To the end of the age, all authority in heaven and earth given to me, and I'm with you. Do you know what that, that's showing? It's showing that the whole book of Matthew is about God being with us. And many of us, we know that in our minds. But practically, we don't think about it in our regular living. So I want to give you a visual of it today, but I need, an, I need a volunteer. I need somebody that will come here on stage with me. You don't have to say anything. So somebody, go ahead. I'll just close my eyes. Go run up here. The first one up here. Nobody? Nobody? All right. We got somebody. Get up here, Josh. I think the last time I asked somebody to be Jesus, it was Josh. Anyway, we're glad you're up here. Glad you're up here. This is Josh Nance. 
Good friend, glad you're here, Josh. Thank you so much. You don't have to say a word, but there's one rule I want you to do. No matter what I do or what I say, I want you to stick like right next to me. So I'm gonna walk around, you stay with me. Come on, get closer. Jesus is better than that. Let's do this. All right, yeah, that's good. All right, so he's Jesus, and I'll be just like all of our lives, like how we live life. And here's the reality. There's times in our lives where we're pumped that Jesus is right here with us. Are you coming to church today? We sing songs. He's a great redeemer. We love him. He's so faithful. He's died for us. His blood. Jesus, we're pumped. Like, I'm glad you're here, Jesus. Glad you showed up at church today. Good thing, good thing. Christmas time, he is the reason for the season. You've got, you know, difficulty comes in your life. You're like, Jesus, I'm glad that you're here. I needed you here. I need your peace. I need you around me. But there's other times we're not like rebelling necessarily, but we just kind of ignore, we just kind of go about our day. We live our lives. We're walking around. We're kind of doing our thing. So tell the kids stories, uh, go grocery shopping, go to work, sit in our cubicle. And we're just not thinking about the fact that Jesus is right there with us all the time. But he's there. There's other times where we kind of like it, if we're candid, if Jesus wasn't there. And it can be those moments, like what I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, you Yell at the kid, what are you thinking? How'd you do that? Oh, hey, what's up, Jesus? No, you don't think about it. You're like, ignore it. Some of you, if you're honest, some of you, like last night, maybe, go to the club, be like, hey, Jesus, we're, I'm, we'll go to church tomorrow, but today I just like you kind of, why don't you just, you just not to just chill, okay? <laughs> or some of you, maybe it's like a business deal. If you got to choose, you're like, you just wait outside, Jesus. I'm going to go in here. You might not handle some of the, it's the business world. We'll, be, we'll meet back up. But he's there. He's always there. He's always with you. Difficulty comes, he's there. Great times come, he's there. But in order to acknowledge it, you have to turn to him. And that's what we see in the passage. But here's the other thing we saw in the passage. you remember the context? The context is Jesus isn't wanting to follow you around in life. He's not even wanting to just be side by side with you. What's it? If you go back to those verses, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Put verse 27 up on the screen. We got verse 27 up on the screen. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. Well, so the way this illustration is supposed to actually go is like this. Where do you want me to go, Jesus? Go ahead and go anywhere, Josh. Go wherever you want. You get to pick because you're Jesus in the illustration. I'm supposed to be following him. The way most of us live, he's following me. Oh, glad you were here with me while I was with my kids telling the stories. Wish you weren't there when I lost it. He's always, he will never leave you or forsake you. That's why when the son turns to the father, the father's right there. Let's give Josh a hand. Thank you so much for helping me out with the illustration. Appreciate it, buddy. Here's the reality. Some of us here today are running in our hearts covertly, or outwardly, overtly, from God, and we think that we can outsin his grace. We think we can outrun his love. You can run from God. You can't outrun God. Read Jonah if you don't believe that that's true. See, you, you think that God's love's going to run out for you. It doesn't. It runs after you because God runs after rebels. And so what do we do as rebels? What do we do? We need to return to God. And that's part of the life. That's part of the Christian life. Martin Luther said it like this. He he said the Christian life, our Lord and Master willed it, that it be one of regular repentance. We're always turning back to him. Do you know why? Because we're continually prone to wander, continually running, overtly, covertly. So we need to return, and we can return through Christ. That's our second point. Our second point today is that if you're a rebel, 
You can always, you can always, as long as you've got breath in your lungs, you can always return to your heavenly Father through Christ. So we must return through Christ. Look at the passage again. Look at verse 16. Luke chapter 15, verse 16. How do we return? Well, we see it here. He was longing to be fed. He's there. There's a famine. He's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. What's the first thing he does? Verse 17. But when he came to himself, pause right there. This is key. This is, this is how you came to Christ, those of you who know Jesus, because conviction comes before conversion. He came to himself. Some of your translations might say he came to his senses. The idea being here, he saw himself for who he really was, what he really was. And sometimes what happens is some of us, we, you talk to rebels and like you can see it in their life and they can't see it. They can't even see that they're at the bottom and they're at the bottom. And what happened here is he saw it. He saw that he was at the bottom. He came to himself. He looked in the mirror. What, what's the mirror? How do we see the mirror? Where do we see the, the mirror at? Well, here's, here's what's not a good mirror. Your friends. Because what happens when we look at our friends, we compare ourselves to them and everybody can find friends that are worse than them. Just FYI. Well, I'm not doing that. Oh, Congratulations. Based on your morality scale, which isn't probably God's, you think you're doing better than somebody else, so you'll never see how you're truly doing. You know what a good mirror is? Is the Scriptures. James chapter 1 talks about God's Word being the mirror. It says, who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like, and then talks about looking into God's law intently, because then you see yourself. Conviction comes before conversion. And you know what else happens once you're converted? Conviction still becomes part of your life. God's conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. Conviction is part of that process. Come to you. You've got to see yourself. But then what happens? Look at the next part of verse 17. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Pause, pause. I'm going to read the next part of the verse. So what is it that drew him back to his father? He remembered his father's goodness. It was his memory. Even I'm his son. How many of his servants are better off than I am in the situation than I because he's a good father. So it makes me think about how many prodigals stay away from churches because they're filled with so many older brothers. See, I, when I think about the kind of church that I want to be a part of, the kind of church I want Southbridge to be, we talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change. It's not everybody that's got their stuff together, by the way. It's not everybody who's conformed to all the standards of the Bible because that's nobody. Anybody who thinks that that's true of their lives is deceiving themselves. They haven't come to themselves yet. The kind of church that I want to be a part of, I want to be a part of a church where a prodigal says, if I were to ever go to church, I'm going to go there. Do you know why? Do you know where hungry people go when they need food? A place that feeds them. You know where thirsty people go? A place to give them a drink. You know where people who need forgiveness go? A place of grace. Do you know how you have a place of grace? It's a bunch of people who've experienced grace in their own lives that then exudes from their lives and the lives of others. People who think they have it all together, they're judging everybody. They're a bunch of cranky, crusty, angry people that try to pretend to be good on the out. They're covert rebels. No, what we want, we want people that are filled with the grace of God because they've experienced the grace of God in their lives. It's the kind of church I want to be a part of. What about you? A couple of you. Good, good. Or two or three are gathered. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you're here today. Thanks for being with us. Verse 18, look at what he says. Remembers the goodness of God, comes to himself, remembers the goodness of God. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. He comes up with a plan. 
And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That is true. Him saying, I've, served, I've sinned against heaven. It's a Jewish way that respectfully would not say the name of God. He's talking about here. I've sinned against God. And I've sinned against my dad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. This next part shows that he has really bad theology. But we've all probably done this. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's a debtor's theology. And some of you have heard it, maybe you've had it preached, maybe I've, I've maybe said it accidentally, even preached it before, where somebody says, Jesus died for you, the least you can do is say hi to people. Like, the least you can do is tell people about Jesus. The least you can do is stop sinning. And, and the idea is, he did something for me, so I, oh, I've got to pay him back. See, see what the son's saying here, verse 18? I'm no longer worthy, I've done this naughty stuff, so you can treat me like one of the servants, and I'm going to do, I'll, just, I'll work my way back into your favor. Here, you can't pay back a debt that's already been paid. It was paid at the cross of Christ. You don't owe God anything. It was paid at the cross of Jesus Christ. So look how the Father shows this. And he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, remember his rehearsed speech, we just read it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. True, all true. But, verse 22, it's a huge but. Notice, notice, he's got this planned speech. The father interrupts him. So Jesus, the master teacher, remember this is a made-up story. The master teacher, as he's telling this story to reveal to you your heavenly father's love for you, decides to stop the speech at this moment and now show lavish grace. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your all true, all true. But, there's a huge but in the Bible right there. Huge but. The Father, now this changes. Everything changes in this parable right here. Said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. That would be the Father's own robe, by the way. Not your righteousness, but your clothes with the righteousness of Christ. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. A signet ring. It would be the authority of being part of the family. All who believe on his name are given the right to be called children of God. And, and shoes on his feet. And so he's so destitute he doesn't have shoes anymore. He's been working as a servant. Slaves, servants didn't have shoes. Sons have shoes. What the father's saying in essence here when he gives these articles of clothing is he's saying, you will not be a servant in my house. You are my son. I'm going to treat you like my son. Now, you can think in your mind this debtor's theology and try and live like a slave, but you're a son in the house of God. You've been given the right to be called a child of God. Amen? Yeah. The Ephesians 1 says you have all spirit, like everything that's his, every spiritual blessing, it is yours. You have access to it, not because you earned it, because Jesus Christ gave it to you when he adopted you into the Father's family. So a picture of the gospel we're seeing here, a glimpse, a shadow of the gospel in this story. And then he says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. One scholar I read said that the fattened calf would feed about 200 people. It was set aside for a special festival, special celebration. He says, my son, my son is why. For this, my son, you're his son, you're his daughter, who is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, what if you're a rebel? What if you're a rebel today? What do you do? You've got to respond to God's relentless pursuit of you. Overt, covert, I don't care. Here's what you got to be honest with yourself. Come to your, look at the mirror and see yourself. And see, maybe it's just no one know. No one here would know. 
but you've been rebelling? See, what's going on in your heart? Some of you here, you, you don't even realize, other people can see it, but you don't even realize how rebellious you've been to God. The very fact that you're here today is you could consider a miracle because of the way you've been living. Return to your Father. He comes running because God runs after rebels. And some of you here today, you do have rebels in your life. People that you love dearly, they've gotten away from our Heavenly Father, and your heart breaks for them. What do you do? Run to your Father because only He's going to change their heart. You can try to manipulate them. You can try to make them feel guilty. You can, try to, you can do all kinds of stuff, but you're just, it's just their behavior. And how long did that younger son live at home? Just conforming his behavior, but what was going on in his heart was happening the whole time. I was studying this passage this week. It reminded me of a story I read a long time ago in a book that I read, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala. Um, it's impacted me greatly, and he tells a story uh, about page 60 of his own daughter rebelling against him. He's pastor in this huge church in Brooklyn and world famous. And nobody in the church knows his 16-year-old daughter. 16 years old, first 16 years of his life, he says she didn't stray. She's a compliant child, very good kid. But at 16, she started to drift from them. And he said, I tried everything. Argued with her. I tried to manipulate her. Uh, you, you, they'd, you know, try to use money to control her, but she just got further and further. Pleaded with God, pleaded with her. But it was like the more they tried, the harder her heart got. And he tells a story about how while this was happening, about two years into it, his wife Carol, who leads the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, some of you have heard of that, had to have a surgery, was dealing with some of the, oftentimes when you have surgery, there's depression afterwards, she's dealing with some of that. And she felt like Satan gave her a message. I'm going to read it to you from the words that he puts in this book. During the post-surgical depression that followed, the devil took the opportunity to come after her and say, you have a big choir you're making albums, doing outreaches at Radio City Music Hall, fine. You and your husband can go and reach the world for Christ, but I'm going to have your children. I've already got the first one. I'm coming after the next two. And she went to her husband, Jim, and said, we've got to leave New York. This city got our first daughter. It's not going to have our other kids. We've got to get out of here. And he went to a friend of his, talked to a friend, another pastor, pleaded with him to talk with his daughter. His daughter's name's Chrissy. And he did. A friend called him back in November that year. He said, she's going to do what she wants to do. She's 18. And there's nothing you can do about it. Just pray. He decided at that point he wasn't going to talk to people about it. He was only going to talk to the father about it. He starts praying about it. And one night, it's February, they're in a prayer meeting at their church. It's a Tuesday night. And they're praying, and this woman had given a note to one of the ushers, and the usher handed it to him, and it was about, we need to, as a church, as a whole, pray for your daughter, Chrissy. And he had been preaching, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4 talks about boldness under persecution, and the place was shaken because of the prayers of God's people, and, and so they get, they get hands together. He gives a metaphor in the book. He says, it was like we entered into a labor and delivery room, and we were fighting on behalf of this little girl, and needed to survive. And it's like we were saying to Satan, you can't have her. They prayed that night. He said he went home. He told his wife, Carol, said, it's over. It's done. If there's a God in heaven, we're done battling. 32 hours later, this is what happened. As I was shaving, Carol burst through the door. Go downstairs, she blurted. Chrissy's here. It's you she wanted to see. I wiped off the shaving foam, and I headed downstairs, my heart pounding. As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. Cautiously, I spoke her name. Chrissy? 
She grabbed my pant leg and began pouring out her anguish. Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against you and Mommy. Please forgive me. Then suddenly she drew back. Daddy, she said with a start, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? Her voice was like a cross-examining attorney. What do you mean, Christy? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? In the middle of the night, God woke me up, showed me I was heading towards this abyss. There was no bottom to it. I was scared to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any farther. She came to herself. She remembered the goodness of her father. She said, I still love you. Who was praying for me Tuesday night? Who's praying for your rebels? As a church, we need to be praying. 